Welcome back, folks. This is the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Dark Sky Series special release. Number seven, you know what? We were holding off and holding off because we wanted Dr. Jacob Lieberman to be our first episode of Starving for Darkness, which is going to be a new weekly podcast coming out that Jane Slade and I are going to do together in collaboration to get this dark sky, dark water, dark earth, darkness moving movement going. The Starving for Darkness movement. Yes, we need it. And uh, but you know what? Just too much time has gone by. We gotta give you guys Lieberman. So here he comes as a get a grip on lighting podcast, Dark Sky series. It's got to get out there. It's can't got to be fresh. Got to be having it. Uh, before we go into it, though, whoa! What are you talking about? Huh? You gotta go to K E Y. Keep it e- what? Keep 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 it easy. Yeah, at K E Y S T O N E T E C H dot. That's KeystoneTech.com, the easy people, light made easy. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Get associated. Here comes Jane and I with Dr. Jacob Israel Lieberman on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Welcome back. This is, well, welcome to the first episode of the Starving for Darkness podcast. And it's hosted by Jane Slade and myself, Michael Colligan. And this podcast, the purpose of it is to promote the responsible use of electric light. But that's not where it's limited. And so we're going to go to a lot of areas and uh, that surround this topic in, ter- in terms of light, darkness, internal light, the internal darkness. And we're going to discuss these things and their meaning and why they're important. And we're going to make the case for the technical side. But that has a whole other element to it. And so this is the first episode of that show. And so Jane Slade is here with me. And I'm very honored. And I say that with, like I've never said it before, to have Dr. Jacob Israel Lieberman joining us today. I just finished his book. I've watched a bunch of his, well, I, fit, I listened to his book twice on Audible, actually. Before we start, I've already interviewed you once. Dr. Lieberman, Jacob, thank you so much yeah. for your work, actually. I'm oh, so honored so to have you here. I am equally honored. You know, a conversation uh, is much better than a monologue. And there's some excitement and spontaneity that happens when two people connect and actually do something live, like what we're doing right now. So for me, this is the most exciting conversation I could have. Well, thank you so much for that uh, introduction, Mike. And I share your reverence for Jacob and Jacob's work. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, we will dig into that specifically um, because it has it holds personal meaning for me. Um, but we like to start off the show with uh, the same question for every guest, which is, can you please tell us about an experience that you've had under the dark sky the starry night that had a profound effect on you. You say under the starry nights, could you be a little bit more specific of exactly what you mean? Yes. So I, in this podcast series, we really are talking about the effects of light pollution upon the planet. Mm -hmm. And that most people really don't know what they're missing anymore 
when they are in a city and they have actually no access to the night sky, starlight, or any type of um, right. natural daylight cycle. And so yeah. we like to start off with the crux of it, which is that what is a meaningful experience that you had under the night sky that left you awestruck? You know, somewhere before we exit our mother's womb, we are in a totally safe place within our mothers. We're uh, in a liquid that is optimal temperature. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. There's total safety there. There's total safety there. And we get to re-experience something about that every night when we get under the covers. Hmm. And it's dark outside. Darkness is another word for restoration. Mm -hmm. It's a time when some part of you goes, ah. Every morning I get up around 5 or 5.30, it's still dark here. I get into my hot tub outside. I'm at about 103 degrees. The sky is dark. The moon might still be out. You can still see some stars. And the silence is golden. There's something absolutely profound and then there's an awakening of mother nature which corresponds to our own awakening something starts rustling something starts moving and so what we get from the night sky is we get an opportunity to begin again mm -hmm. we get an opportunity to fully restore we think we're getting things done during the day but in actuality much more is being done at night while we are not involved in our addiction to doing <laughs> and so what happens is in that state of rest a lot of things are occurring. Not only is our body fully restoring, but we are also receiving some sort of information in the form of dreams where even though our eyes are closed, there is no light, we're not looking at anything, and yet we see Something that is so vivid that it is beyond our imagination. And it's even beyond the dimensionality of our everyday lives. Sometimes we experience ourselves flying or moving from one place to the next very, very quickly. And these dreams actually um, have profound messages on some level. If you... And I've spent years looking at dreams. And our dreams sort of foretell something about some things that impact us in our everyday lives. So the darkness is, um, is they hold the great mystery. Mm 
And it's almost like when you look at a tree, you're sure that what exists is this thing you see above the ground, but three quarters of it is beneath the ground Mm -hmm. and you're not even aware of it. But that, but that mystery, Dr. Lieberman is a thing. Like the problem, Jane, and I'm going to go over to you here, Jane. The problem is that that mystery is something we don't value right now. And we're starving for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's so incredible about it because uh, all of our technology today, or most of it, is communicating, sending signals and doing things in an area of life we can't see, we can't smell, we can't taste, we can't hear. It's almost uh, another uh, sensory channel that we're unaware of. And I think what that is signaling to us is our ability to perceive what is yet not seen technologically, like Mm -hmm. the use of radar or some other technology, is no different than our own intuition. Mm-hmm. That senses things before they become evident. And so there's an invitation to delve into this area with excitement, with caution, uh, with reverence. Um, I think this is what keeps us alive, is this um, this yearning for truth beyond opinion. Yes. And that's what my life is about. And I have a feeling that's what our conversation <laughs> is about today. I, Jane? <laughs> well, uh, let me just say, Jacob, that your work is profoundly personal to me because I, I am the child of a biologist. Um, And so science was always this um, revered type of thought. And I believe in science and I love science, but it leaves gaping holes in what I need as a human. And so, you know, I followed the path of getting the degrees that you need to be seen in society. And, And so here I am in the lighting industry, taking notice that we are overlighting the planet and and that is sort of the the uh, accredited version of what I'm interested in. And then there's the whole other side of it, which is light as spirit, light as the unnameable. And your work actually merges those two sides of the thoughts of light. And so it is for me almost a Rosetta Stone, uh, in which that will actually be a fulcrum for me moving forward in my life. So thank you so much for that. And so, you know, personally, I just want to ask you, you say in your book that you, someone told you that you are pretending to be the person you already are. Right. Yeah. And, you know, how did you really make that leap from being a science-based person to having the ability to just lean on faith and inspiration more? You know, science is about delving into the unknown. And when we think of science, excuse me, Mm -hmm. 
we envision gold standard studies. We envision looking into a microscope or a telescope or some uh, device that can sense things that perhaps our senses don't immediately see. But that's only one brand of science. There is another type of scientist called a mystic. A mystic does not see the invisible by looking through a microscope. They actually see what is not there based on direct experience. Direct experience meaning that they have an epiphany. Hmm. So to give you an example, and I often have asked this to scientists when we get into these conversations, there is a place before I say, oh, I had a great idea, where that idea enters our awareness from where we do not know. We might mm. be sitting and having a glass of wine or a dinner at a restaurant. And all of a sudden, something flashes in our awareness that we have no idea where this came from. We call it inspiration. And we mm -hmm. start writing feverishly on the napkin because we just had the download of our lives. That hit of inspiration, which doesn't come through as a thought, it comes through as pure clarity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from us. It comes to us free of charge. That is what causes our eyes physically and the mind's eye to look in a certain direction with a, um, almost a falling in love with something where I must take a look at that. I must go there. I must do that. And so that inspiration is actually the spark that catalyzes scientific discovery. And so mm -hmm. even the most hardcore scientists, even though they may say, I don't believe in these things that are unseen, even though their work deals with the unseen, if you speak with them privately, they will let you know that prior to every area that they've delved into, something has come to them, an insight, an epiphany, a revelation, a, I don't know what it is, that all of a sudden says, oh my God, something is possible. And that is the area of science. <clears throat> that has always blessed my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I was 11 years old. I was living in Miami, Florida, and I was selling newspapers uh, on the corner every afternoon. I used to sell the five-star final for a nickel and make a penny on each paper. And I would ride my bicycle to the corner after work, after school, and sell papers. But one day I was in school late. I drove to the corner before I had a chance to go home and get a snack. 
I got to the corner, the papers hadn't been delivered, and I was hungry. All of a sudden, what caught my eye was Saunders Hardware across the street. This was on the corner of 27th Avenue and Carl Way in Miami. I remember it so well. I walked into Saunders Hardware. I went right to the candy counter where they had all the different bars. I grabbed a Mars bar, which was very common at the time. I stuck it in my back pocket and I started to walk out. All of a sudden, I heard a voice in my head. It said, nobody saw you. And immediately, something stopped me in my tracks. And there's a, there was a realization that I saw me. <laughs> I went outside and I sat under a tree, afraid to go back and return the candy bar. And at the same time, sitting with this amazing realization, this voice I heard all the time that I thought was inside my head that said, nobody saw you. And then this awareness that had no voice whatsoever that realized that I, whatever I was, saw me. Mm -hmm. And I realized the I that saw me was not the voice that said nobody saw you. So and like, that was one of hang on yeah. a second here. Hang on, hang on. Because like what you you've gone the idea of science, the mystic as scientist, okay? And the yeah. idea of where inspiration comes from, um, that is like that is before you like these voices in our heads, and you talk about the witness so much in your work. Yeah. The witness. Who stole the Mars bar, right? <laughs> Who did that, right? The witness, yeah. right? And this accumulation. Um, how, like from a scientific perspective, how did you come from, and I want to go back to the mystic, how, like that's a courageous step. You take Max Planck, he, he says, the, you talk about this in your book, Luminous Life, a lot, where you talk about the observed and the observer, and the yeah. permanent change that happens, and that's a scientific law. I think it was Max Planck or whatever. And that conflicts with Einstein's theory of relativity, but they don't, they both are true, or they both believe to be true at the same time. And that's a great paradox. How does the scientist enter mysticism? And at what point do we encourage that? Or do we, why have we lost that or something? Can you comment to that effect? Einstein was once asked, how did you discover the theory of relativity? And he started laughing. He said, oh, that came to me while I was playing piano. That line, if you look at the writings of Einstein early in his life, you see the hardcore scientist. If you look at at a lot of the things he said later in his life, you see a mystic, a philosopher. Mm -hmm. I think all scientists eventually come to a place of realizing that behind everything we think we know is a mystery. <laughs> and that mystery is really what science is looking at. So the leap comes from spending all of our lives 
thinking that we know versus this witness that knows without knowing how it knows. You said before, who stole the candy bar? <clears throat> the candy bar was stolen or was initiated by that same part of our system that said nobody saw you. <laughs> the witness is that which is noticing everything and is not that chatter in the head. And, you know, we talk about consciousness. That's something that's very common in science today. They call it the hard problem. Mm -hmm. And everyone describes consciousness as the mind and so on and so forth. But all of us are aware of the chatter that's going on inside. That's why we know that there's chatter going on, because something is aware of it that is not the chatter itself. If you become, the more you notice the chatter, the more you notice how that chatter impacts you. And how if you identify with the chatter that becomes part of your action or movements in the world. But if you can get good at just noticing that particular chatter, you will notice its content. And you will see that its content is really all the conditioning that we've had throughout our lifetime. Sometimes we speak of the mind and we say, I had a second thought. The reason we call it a second thought is because it isn't the first one. The first one is not a thought at all. It's what your teachers used to say. Your first impression is always the right one. That first knowing prior to any thought mm. is what's absolutely clear. That's what an animal notices that causes it to either feel safe or to take off and run. The animal doesn't have to think about anything. And it's usually it's right. It's usually right. It's right most of the time. It should run. You know something? We're part of that same everything. We spend our whole life trying to figure out what is already natural in our system. Mm -hmm. Our system always lets us know when something is safe, when it isn't, where to go, where to not go. We have an absolute built-in, call it a sixth sense if you want, just like every other creature in this world. But, and, Jane, but hang on a second yeah. here before we go for, too far down this, this yeah. path. Jane, why do we ignore that so much? And how do we get how do we get this into the lighting again? Like I I I I, I love the conversation, but we Jane, we got to find a way to take this because there's so many questions. I have like 44 questions. I'm never going to get to all of them for you. But Jane, why do we ignore that so much? And what does it have to do with light? I mean, that is a heady question right there. Sure. 
And and I too have too many questions for you, Jacob. I, I let's back up for a second. And I don't even think we've even talked to the audience about how you are an optometrist by training, and that you have um, throughout your career utilized your intuition to diagnose and treat patients. And very often, it was not a physical problem, but it was an emotional problem or a spiritual problem that kept the human body from seeing. And so you, you got into your, your profession by going through all of the rigors of training. Right. And then you, you kind of, uh, you were the scientist and then you became the mystic in your work. Um, I am thinking right now about the anecdote in your story about how you, uh, simply knew to touch the the back of a patient to allow her to be able to see properly. And that just came to you as a moment of intuition. Right. And so I think, so your training, um, kind of doing it the the way, the the societal way, but then using that as a as a platform for you to really do your your real work, which was more inspired. Um, by by the other. Um, and then we come to a place where we all are in society. So your path is very successful. It's, it's tuned in, it's tapped in. But the rest of us have a barrage of emails, messages on our phones, constant brightness till 11 p.m. at night. Um, and so I, Mike, I'm trying to synthesize all of this together in my well, question the, here. The, I, think, I think the question you're asking is, the electric light and the natural mm. light, right? So this information that's constantly coming at us, Jacob, is coming at us through light. Right. But it's causing us to ignore the darkness and the natural light. And, mm -hmm. and the idea that darkness is a kind of light, the way you started off in the beginning, that it's part of a, a light cycle that we need, circadian rhythm, it's right. often called. Right. I think what Jane is asking is, is how badly are these artificial lights, all this, the, the blue, like we're on the light, this message is being transmitted by light, right? But right. we have so much of it now that it's actually starting to crowd out other kinds of light that the natural kind, the moonlight, the starlight that we need. We're in buildings all day. What is this effect upon us in our eyes? It incarcerates us. Hmm. Um, it's, it's really very profound. <clears throat> our eyes are inseparably married to this uh, primal energy of life called light. Remember, the Bible says in the beginning, let there be light. And then it says, on the fourth day, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Two kinds of lights. One is something you appreciate as brightness. And one is light of a different nature. And you're asking about both of those lights. Whenever our eyes are in a constrained state, looking at a book, looking at a monitor, being in a building, being in a closet, being in a small elevator, we immediately uh, lessen our ability 
to flow, to breathe. And so the moment that our eyes are restricted to a two-dimensional plane instead of three dimensions, we catalyze a process called stress. Our breathing rate, our heart rate, our galvanic skin response, the muscles in our neck all get tight. That's just from sitting in the classroom, reading a book, looking at a monitor, sitting in front of your office all day. And that um, constriction or confinement causes our eyes to adjust to that small distance. That's called nearsightedness, the biggest health epidemic in the world today. That's why 90% of college students and postgrad students above 90% are nearsighted. It's biggest health epidemic beyond anything else we know. We think it's normal. Everybody wears glasses, had Lasix, wears contacts or whatever it is. But that's all because of visual confinement, which not only impacts our eyes and the musculature of the body, but it causes us not to breathe. So this is why when you, when people leave their office buildings at lunchtime, the moment they get outside, the same sound you hear from all of them, <sighs> because they've just released all of that stress. So in relation to what you're speaking of, uh, the use of electric lighting was a wonderful thing. <clears throat> Allows us to see clearly indoors. But when we create things, because we create them from something that does not see reality directly, or infinitely, but sees it in a confined manner, it's called the mind, we create something that's only partially beneficial. Because the part we don't see is partially not beneficial. And those parts that are not beneficial are called side effects. So pretty much every technology that we develop has an impact, an effect, and then years later, we say, oh, my God, there are these side effects. Mm -hmm. So years ago, we told people not to go on the sun because sun created skin cancer and cataracts and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, most of that was really not the case. But when they did that, people not only continued to get melanomas, which have nothing to do with the sun for the most part. But now we have a vitamin D epidemic because people are not going out in the sun. So everything is about moderation and balance. In my office right now, here I have a 32-inch monitor and a 4 by 8 foot window right behind it. I have natural light coming in all the time. My eyes can escape into infinity in any, any moment. So I take the technology that we have and I also marry it to Mother Nature. I have lighting in the house, but I have halogen lighting 
mm-hmm. uh, which for me is some of the best indoor lighting. I, I think can you're have. right. You're talking to a lighting expert, but before you go yeah. any further, I want to ask Jane because I'm listening to you, and I agree with you. But there's something I think that Jane is on to that is equally as important. And so what we've discovered on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, and now we're going to discover more on this podcast, is that, listen, sunglasses are actually probably bad for you most of the time. Yeah. And sunscreen is right. probably bad for you most of the time. In fact, when it expires, it becomes hazardous waste in Ontario. So in the right. province I live in, if expired sunscreen comes off the shelf, it has to be shipped on a manifest and disposed of as hazardous waste. Okay. But so we're equally lacking in, we're lacking in the natural light, the the light that you have behind the window of your screen. And when people go outside, they feel less stressed. But Jane, this place, this thing is called starving for darkness. And I think we're equally lacking in darkness as if darkness is a kind of light, Jane Slade. Yes. And, and to circle back and maybe connect some dots here. And, and coming back to what you said originally, Jacob, which is that darkness is restorative. And when you also talk about the light within in your book. And so it's as if we're really failing to reconnect with the light within when we are in constant brightness and the constant barrage of information. And so I think That's that exactly that disconnection right. is happening all over for all of us. Uh, let, let me say a few things about that. If we took a spaceship today and we went into outer space, way, way out there, where it's just pure light, what does it appear like? Does it appear bright? No. All you experience is total blackness. So when something is filled with light, it's actually as dark as dark can be. So that example is speaking to this inner light. You said, how did you become a mystic from being a scientist? Actually, the opposite is true. We're all born mystics. We become scientists because we're conditioned to believe that being just who we are is not enough. You need a degree. And if one is not enough, you get two. And if two is not enough, you get three. Until you realize, oh, this is all bullshit. <laughs> that that all of this I did to become the person I think I'm supposed to be, rather than just being the person that I am. I mean, I have accumulated three doctorates. They don't mean anything to me right now, because other than the fact that they took me down a certain journey to come back to the fact that I was always doing a subtle impersonation to become the person I thought I was supposed to be. I was impersonating who I already was. So to come back to your question about the darkness and so on, what we call our intuition is not a feeling. It's not something in our belly brain. What we call our intuition is our inseparable connection with the signals of light, which are invisible, 
that are guiding the activity of all hundred trillion cells in our body continually so that they have a sense of what's coming before it has arrived. Mm. They receive that at the speed of light and can perceive single photons. That means that our cells are perceiving the formless before it is rendered into form. That ability we have to sense the invisible before it is visible is literally our ability to see in the darkness. It's literally our ability to tap into the mystical side <clears throat> and to combine our ability to see into the darkness with our ability to see into the light as two halves of the same whole. What we're really speaking about is how can we both develop the intellect without losing sight of our intelligence? Hmm. They're two very, very different pieces. And uh, the lighting field, you said, how do we integrate this with light? You know, when you go into a movie theater, you sit comfortably in a chair, you look at a screen that's totally blank, there's nothing on it, and then magically you see something on the screen that looks like real life. How do they do that? Well, behind you is a person running a projector. The projector has a film in it, not different from the film you call the contents of the mind. Mm. And then behind that film is a light, just pure light, unadulterated pure light that becomes something when it goes through the screen through that film. We identify ourselves as the film when in actuality we are the light. And the film is the intellect. The film is the intellect. The film is literally the history of conditioning that has occurred not only with us, but all of the people that preceded us. The way we behave most of which occurs without any awareness, is probably very similar to the way our parents behave, their parents behave, their parents behave. This conditioning has been passed on forever. When you were born, Jane, before someone put a label on you that said Jane, before the nurse wrapped you up in a pink rather than a blue blanket, before you were told, oh, you have white skin rather than darker skin, before they said, oh, you're Christian, you're Jewish, you're Muslim, you're whatever it is, before any of that, you were just pure essence. Mm -hmm. No preferences, no likes, no dislikes, no beliefs, just pure awareness. That pure awareness, that is hardwired into us. We are born with that state. 
there is some conditioning that's passed through and then it is reinforced in our life experiences. I got to ask a question here because you're hitting on yeah. and we're away from light again, but that's okay. Too bad for the listeners. Uh, if they're just light obsessed, <laughs> because this is very important to me personally. So you make the assertion in your book that when babies are born with that babies are born without an ego, mm. not the ego develops. Okay. Right. And um, I actually disagree with that. I think that, you know, that's hard to know. And you also talk about, you know, the unconscious is unavailable for analysis because there's no way to separate the self from that, that which observes it in a way, right? So the consciousness is what's observing in a sense. That's the witness. So it's Im right. impossible to witness the witness in a sense. That's, that's a, a fundamental dilemma of science, right? That we sure. can never learn what consciousness is, is because the witness is what's, it's the final set it. of eyes. Yeah, right. you can't mirror it back at itself or something like that. Right. But I, I disagree with the thrust that babies are born without an ego. I have four children, and they were all different, right as babies, right away. They all had their own ways of doing things and right. their own things, right. they, you know, whatever, and they all acted differently. And so my belief is that we're born with the ego and that... If we walk our path, whether you, know, you, you talk about Christ consciousness, you talk about you know, Hinduism, whatever it is that you're talking about, they're all kind of speaking to something that's on a lo another level or another layer. And that's this idea of, of enlightenment or you know, whatever you want, nirvana or whatever you want to call it. They all have the words. They're all speaking to this place that you get to. I don't, you know, like, I think you even mentioned in your book, um, the great poet T.S. Eliot, you know, I shall come to the same place and be there for the first time again in his poem. Right. Um, I, I, but I think, I don't know if I agree with that. I think it, and tell me why I'm wrong, because I think we're born the way we're born and then we come through this life and then there's a process for you. It meant, it meant three degrees to get to where you are. So you can't take away the three right. degrees. You're right. going to be a different guy. Right. You're not going right. to, that was your path. You were carved through that. So why is you're, it that you're exactly right? You're exactly right. And in fact, we're saying exactly the same thing. You and, you know, we each interpret what we think is being said. What's actually being said may be very different. So let me share with you <laughs> how you and I are aligned rather than anyone needing to be wrong or right. We have a nature, and that nature is who we are throughout our life. You look at your photographs in first grade, and even though it's been a long time since you're in first grade, you'll look back and you'll say, I'm exactly the same person. My essence is the same. That's your nature. That's part of your purpose for being. I don't actually say in the book that we don't have an ego. I say we come in with with a lack of preferences. And what I'm suggesting is that yes, we have a nature. Yes, we have a certain purpose. Maybe, maybe this, maybe the journey of our life is already set. There is a blueprint that comes through that we call our genetics. And part of that genetic blueprint is also the conditioning that all of our ancestors have had. So we definitely come in with that blueprint. And then what manifests mm. has to do 
with what is being fertilized in our life's experience. And so we have certain things inside of us. And then when we experience something like it, it sort of like puts water on that particular plant and waters it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with our journey. I had to go through everything I had to go through to actually come to this place that I needed to come to. So I see that my life's journey was actually part of my awakening, part of my curriculum, and so on. The point I'm trying to make is probably the same point that Buddha came to after his awakening. One of the first things he said after he supposedly awoke was, oh my God, there was nothing to do. <laughs> we all think we have to do something in order to get it there, when in actuality, we're already there. So this is confirming exactly what you said. Our life's experience is literally the grist for our mill. It literally becomes the, the experiences that we need to have to have whatever is going on in our life. It is, it is our acceptance of our life experiences that allow us to live with less stress. It is our uh, conditioning to attempt to control every aspect of life that creates our stress. So the experiences are not the problem. It's the part inside that's always orchestrating, rehearsing ahead of time, making notes, having the PowerPoint, getting everything ready so I look like I know it all. I look like I've got it together. No one has it together. This pandemic is a perfect example. So I'm in full agreement of exactly what you said because I've got my son and daughter are your age or maybe older. And yes, their natures have been the same from the time they were born. And we speak almost daily with each of them. And the thing that I mirror to them or share with them more than anything is that they can trust their guidance. Mm -hmm. That they can absolutely trust that what's going on in their life is what needs to go on in their life, that there's nothing wrong with them. And I say that to you because we have an epidemic of something's wrong with me. I'm mm -hmm. not present enough. I'm not this. I'm not successful enough. I'm not pretty enough, whatever it is. And it keeps us on a wheel of doing. But you know what, though, Dr. Lee? Hang on, Dr. Yeah, Lieberman. Yeah. No one ever said that when they were lying on a dock looking up a beautiful sky of stars, though, actually. You're nobody, absolutely right. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> what what we feel when we're laying on that dock looking at the sky is, oh, thank God I'm alive. Yes. You just feel nourished and blessed. And and that's from the light. That is from the light of the stars. It's, ab it's absolutely from the light uh, of the stars, the reflected sunlight off of the moon. Mm -hmm. That subtle light. 
that we experience at night when we think there is no light is light as a homeopathic remedy. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with you. You know, not in homeopathy, the more potent you get, the less the less of the ingredient is actually in there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The most potent remedies, <laughs> you cannot find anything in the water. You cannot even measure the energetic imprint. And yet that is the most potent aspect. And so what you're speaking about in this restorative light of nighttime This is the most potent aspect of our life. You know, my wife and I love to get into bed at night. You know, we get into bed. She says, lovey, assume the position. I put my (laughs) left arm up. She puts her head right here. And we fall asleep. And she said, lovey, this is the best place in the whole wide world to be right now. And we slept last night for nine hours. And it was sleep last night without any dreams. Mm. Everything was, it was just like a log. It was just a taking in a refreshing aspect. Um, for me, that's the best part of my 24-hour cycle is falling into that space where there's no more thoughts, there's no more struggle, there's nothing else to figure out. And when you think about it, I had a very dear friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago. He was 92 years old. And he called me one day and he said, you know, I'm afraid of this dying. Can you talk to me about it? I said, what are you afraid of? And he says, I'm not actually sure. I said, well, dying is no different than going to sleep at night. You lay your head on the pillow. You start to feel that sense of no more thoughts, no more stresses, no more anything. The stuff that we spent all day fighting, it's gone now. I said, the only thing about death is that you don't have to wake up and do that same damn thing again. You get to just have that sense. I said, so death is really no different than falling asleep. It's just we fall into that light, that restorative aspect of our nature at a very, very deep level. It's actually an incredibly comforting aspect of having lived a full and vibrant and luminous life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I want to ask you, I think that's absolutely beautiful what you just said. I want to change gears a little bit, Jane, but if you have anything first, sure. please go ahead. Well, what I'm curious about your gear shift is, I here's my question. You say that everything in, in the universe is connected and I completely agree and that we are simply cells in this system of the universe and i i wanted to ask you about some um inexplicable in a scientific way anecdotes that you may have in the in regard to that um but 
Mike, I'm curious about your gear shifting as well. So, um, oh. I think that, uh, Jacob, if you want to go ahead and answer Jane first, and then depending on where you go, then I'll decide whether it's time to shift gears or not, because my okay. brain's getting blown. But we also, you I know, we don't have a limit to the time on the show, but we all have limits, right? So, so you, you, are you asking me what experiences I've had that are outside the realm of understanding? Yes, exactly. My life is full of them. And my children were part of them. Uh, I want to show you something. Just give me a second. Okay. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to blow your mind a little further. Please do. <laughs> when my children were... You see this? Can you see these things? Yep. Yes. What do you think yeah. those are? Forks bent, that were... Bent, bent forks, yeah. Here, hold on a second. Here's some more. Okay. Yeah. Spoons, bent spoons, bent bent cutlery. Yeah. Here. Cutlery sculptures is what I'm seeing. (laughs) Right. I see. I see a bent fork. I'm not as creative. Right. How how do you think they were made? And I'm going to show you one more. I I mean, I'm wondering if. I want you to look at this one. Uh, look at that part, the end of the fork that's bent. Can you see that right here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. How do you think those were created? For the if listeners, but hang on, for the li- people yeah. listening, um, uh, Jacob was just showing us a bunch of uh, cutlery that was been bent into odd shapes. And one fork is bent sort of like a Z almost and with a little tip of the Fork part bent. Go ahead, Jane. Right. If I want to talk to you, Jacob, I would say someone took some pliers, but I think you're going to tell me something about telepathy or what right. the. Uh... I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you just one story to, to, and I only know where these are because someone was visiting the other night and started talking about this, and I pulled this out when my children were very young. My son was about eight years old, my daughter may have, no, my son was seven, my daughter was I think probably eight and a half or nine. I was living in Miami, Florida. Some friend called me and they he said, we're going to a metal bending party tonight. This was probably 1982 uh, or something like that. <clears throat> I said, a what? Said a metal bending party. I don't know what it is. You you want to come? So my kids used to come with me everywhere. So I took them with me, and we went into this place and this apartment. And when we walked in, there was a big salad bowl filled with cutlery, and there was a sign there that said "Take a handful." So we each took a few of these, and we sat down. And then the woman came out dressed in a white robe and started talking about how these metal objects, if you're in the right state and they're in your hand, they literally will start decomposing in your hands. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. She took us through a meditation. And after the meditation, she asked, did any of you have an experience? Well, the 
my two kids and I each had these in our hands that had literally collapsed in our hands and reconfigured themselves. Now, we were the only three people in the entire group of 40 that had this experience. But if you ask my children, and my daughter is a psychologist, she's 46. My son is a filmmaker, author, actor, Broadway singer. He's just about 45. Ask them about this experience when they were children. And they will tell you exactly what I've told you. Now, you can say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. I don't know whether it's ridiculous or impossible. <clears throat> but you said, have you had many of these experiences? I've had thousands of unusual experiences that didn't just happen when I was by myself. And like this, they're unexplainable. What do I do with this? What does this mean to me? Only as a scientist <clears throat> that there are things we do not understand. Mm -hmm. How these things occur, I couldn't begin to tell you. Do I have any ideas about it? Not a one, nor do I care. What's interesting to me is that this is as mysterious for me as how we dream at night mm -hmm. and what that means, how things occur that we don't understand. So these particular experiences, along with many, many others that are equally as unusual, is what brings me to this place, not living in all kind of a conspiracy-based world. Sure. I'm incredibly practical and commonsensical. Sure. That is my brand of science. Um, <laughs> well, let me let me let me ask you let me ask you something here. Um, so, I'm going to share an anecdote with you from my my life, yeah. and something that happened that I that I witnessed. Okay, and I'm going to preface it by saying, you know, you, you don't talk of Christ in in, his, in your book many times. You quote. Christ and in your YouTube yeah. videos, you quote him. And he says, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. So there's something to humans gathering together and focusing, right. praying their attention on something mm -hmm. that is real. Right. Okay. And that people say is hogwash. And, you know, so my, I'm a Catholic. I grew up Catholic. I was born Catholic. I was baptized, first communion, everything. And then my parents, yeah. after my confirmation, went on a 10 year Protestant detour. Okay. In my life. And we went to uh, tent meetings and uh, healing things. And sure. But I, I saw once, I was standing on the balcony in this tiny church in a um, small town in Ontario. And I'll tell you, man, I watched a woman get um, exercised for sure. Like, it was real. Like, I don't care what right. anyone tells me. Like, oh, yeah, that's just all an act or whatever, this sort of thing. I watched that. And there were some other things in that episode of that night that I remember thinking, you know, oh, this is so crazy. I want to go play with my friends. You know what I mean? I was 12 years old. But I remember I, I saw this one girl go up there and she was a, um, she was a sex worker. And she went up to the front to be th this situation. And there was a, 
a spear. And I, I, we're way off topic here, but there was a feeling in the room and there was an exodus of evil for sure in that space. Something happened to her. I'm not going to describe all the things that, that happened because it, it's actually quite a long process. But one of the things I wanted to say was if I have friends that say they're atheists and stuff like that, I challenge them to go to an African-American Pentecostal service. Right. I want you to go to an African-American Pentecostal service. And when they do the altar call and they're slaying people in the spirit, I want you to tell me that you didn't get slayed in the spirit. Because I don't believe, I think if that guy, that preacher at the front lays his hands on you and prays for you while everybody else in that space mm -hmm. is praying for you, buddy, you're going down, son. Atheist, not an atheist. I don't care. Something is going to happen right. to you that's real and you'll get the whack of the spirit and you'll be down on the ground lying there in a state of bliss that you have never achieved of or imagined in your life. And I've seen these things happen many times in my life to all manner of people who talk tough outside the service. And so there's something to humans gathering together and uh, uh, focusing their energy on something that is real and unexplainable, Jacob. You know, uh, I have also <clears throat> directly experienced these kinds of things from having done more than a thousand workshops around the world. I've worked with a lot, a lot of people, and we should actually do a show about the therapeutic impact of color, of different aspects mm. of the light spectrum, which oh, yeah. I think you would find mind-blowing, which is really the essence of my work which I don't think we've actually gotten in touch with, but we'll do that at some point. But to respond to your question, most of life is invisible. Most of it we do not see. This is why they say we use at most maybe 3 or 4% of our intelligence, because most of it we have not seen yet. <clears throat> and I have had a multitude of those kinds of experiences. I have been two feet away from someone having a scalpel put into them and no blood come out. I've been right there, not in a film, right in the room, two feet away with a close friend of mine. I've seen a lot of very unusual things that I cannot explain to you. The power of those things, whether you're a 12-year-old boy uh, experiencing what you experience or the things that I experience, for me, the beauty of those experiences is that they allow you to get a glimpse of something that is totally outside the box. And when it occurs in such a potent manner as you experienced it, or as I experienced it, or perhaps Jane, it's life-changing. It's paradigm-shifting. It lets you know that something is possible. You know that in 1976... You can't unexperience it. You can't unexperience. <clears throat> exactly. And when the experience is potent, like the miraculous shift in my eyesight in 1976, I can't convince any of that, anyone of that. But, the, but when that and happened, but it, when that happened, yeah. 
And when people are slain in the spirit, they're entering a darkness. Their eyes are closed. Your eyes are closed. Right. You're in that right. darkness, right? There's no right. electric light penetrate. You've cl- you shut yourself off right. from it. You're right. sleeping. You're shutting yourself off. And you're, you're yes. allowing the internal light to be in control now. And that's what's right. going on with the dark sky, Jane. It's there's the, where the, our artificial light, the crazy LED, really bright LED lights. And I know why you don't have any LED lights in your right. home because I don't either. And I'm the owner of three lighting companies that sell LEDs all day long. But I don't have right. them in my bathroom where I want a nice warm color temperature and I want the infrared that's right. in the light. And, but Jane, it's that darkness that we're pushing away with all of our artificial light that's contributing to a lack of depth to our character or something. I, I don't know how to describe it, Jacob and Jane. I, I feel like the fact that people cannot see the stars, the fact that they cannot, they're starving for darkness, as Jane Slade puts it. This fact is causing us all manner of, of psychological and health effects because we can't reset. Jacob, we can't reset to that. Not only we can't reset, we have forgotten the most essential aspects of life. Or we can't remember or something because it's being clouded if we, out. If, if we are in touch with this piece of our life, this eternal darkness, which is literally filled with an invisible light, Mm-hmm. If we are in touch with that, we can no longer lie. We can no Jacob. longer do business in a way that's good for me and bad for you. The world has to become about we rather than about me. This entire pandemic has caused us to have to go inside and re-examine things. Mm-hmm. So... The darkness, whether you're speaking about it, literally as the darkness of the night sky, that is actually no different than coming into that internal darkness. That's exactly the same thing. That is nature's way of inviting us there. And we've blocked that, Jane Slade. We've blocked it. So, you know, Jacob, as you just said, I mean, this is the perfect summation to this discussion. And and let me just tell you, I looked down at my questions. I don't know that I asked many of them, but we have definitely covered a lot of it. But you say most of life is invisible. And I yeah. totally agree. And I remember having this, I, I'm one of the few non-atheists in my very, very science-driven family. And so I'm kind of always up against this discussion. And I remember saying to my cousin, well, you know, you can't prove everything. And he was, he, he, he pushed back. And I said, well, how can you prove that I love you? And you really can't prove it. I mean, it's true. It's absolutely true. But that's the invisible part of life is that there's this whole body that is discerning (laughs) that you say in your book that the the heart frequency is much more powerful than the mind frequency. And yeah. so this, this disconnection that we have, you know, if, if most of life is invisible and we as the lighting industry are going around illuminating every last facade, every last corner of the earth, then right. we're really missing the point on what is truly meaningful. And we're taking electric light as information and, and, 
informing the wrong part of our being. So I, I feel that we are truly disconnected and that the lighting industry is sort of missing the point of the meaning of light overall. You're, uh, you couldn't be more accurate. Uh, and people in the lighting field need to really have a, a much deeper understanding of light, not just lighting, mm -hmm. uh, to allow them to have a, a more balanced view. I recently was reached out to by someone <clears throat> who watched our last podcast, even though they'd never gone to this podcast. And they are um, a religious person in the lighting field. And he's probably listening right now. And he said, oh, my God, I've been wanting to bring what I know spiritually into my work, into my business. And I never thought I could actually do it in the business that I'm in. But now I know there's a way. And mm -hmm. so your program has really awoken that. In terms of atheists and so on, I don't know whether they're really atheists or they're fighting against a conceptual something we call God. The, what you're really saying, you see, we have see, this idea let me, let me, let me, this let, God is. Let me yeah. tell you what that is in the Christian perspective. Okay? That is Satan. That's, mm -hmm. that's what, and I don't want to call atheists Satan, right? Right. But when, if you're looking at the difference between God and no, and, and Satan, the idea that one is more intelligent than God is the fundamental basis of the Christian idea of evil. That's what it is, mm. right? That's exactly what it is in that, in that theory. And you talk about, you talk about it as the animating force. So if you deny right. the animating force, you talk about seeing the wind, Okay, because you know right. the wind is there, right? Right. You, you, you can discern it, or otherwise you'd think the tree was moving. This idea that right. humans can declare that there's no animating force to the universe is the most hubristic, egotistical, narcissistic Absolutely. thing ever said. And that is the Absolutely. embodiment, and I hate to say it, but it's like that is what is the, the, the Satan that we're, they're describing, the thing that was cast out of heaven, was the denier of purpose, was the denier of meaning, that you're not good enough as you are, or whatever it is. That's the idea that I think a lot of our, our religious thought is about. And, and so, go ahead. <laughs> what, I was going, what, what I was going to say is, Sometimes it's just a matter of linguistics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you mm. take the common word God and you just, what is, what is something we call a God? Well, it's a force that's moving, that's, that, that's the source of everything. If you speak to a scientist about an animating force, or what is it that is behind all this? I think it's very difficult for them to deny that there's some animating force, something animating the movement of everything. And so I think when we begin to speak about that in different terms, maybe most of us come to the same place. It's sort of like a lot of people use the word spiritual. 
Well, there's nothing wrong with that word, but it's so overused that most people say, ah, that's just a lot of hokey. But if we talk about spiritual as just being the aspect of life that is not visible to us in the same way as the roots of a tree, which stabilize it, nourish it, and so on, are also not seen, not visible to us, then we begin to see that, oh, you're just talking about the part of life we can't see, we haven't discovered yet. All of a sudden, it's not far out of reach. And so part of communicating with people is finding a way of recognizing that you're actually saying the same thing in different ways. Well, Lao Tzu, would say, Lao Tzu would say the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Like that's what he right. starts off his poem with, right? The uh, right. without the Ching, the name it has no like, name exactly. The I Ching, yeah. The so you have this yeah. idea. It's like if you talk to someone about meditation and they happen to be like a Christian, they may be turned off by right. that. But you say, "Let's spend some time listening to God." Oh, okay. Right. You know, now they know what you're talking about, right? So there's a problem, and, and with they're the saying words. the same thing. It's mm-hmm. interesting. It's it, the the meditator. The search of a meditator is to find godliness. The search of a meditator is to all of a sudden notice that something within their humanity is noticing the activity of the mind. There's something within their humanity that is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. The Bible says, God creates humans in God's own image. Mm-hmm. It means that our true nature is godliness. And so the witness for me, what spiritualists term as consciousness, which very few people understand what that is, and I, I term it pure awareness, it's not a physical thing. It's the essence behind all that is. And so... My personal connection with that is direct. It's not I believe in God or I don't. It has nothing to do with belief. It has to do with a a knowing that through some process of grace impacts us And all of a sudden, we don't have to convince anyone. It's just something that is. There's no question about it. It is our essence. It is who we are. And And I would say, I would say we see it best. Like I, and this is what we're talking about with the stars and the moon and the dark sky and, and, it, and a proper use of electric light. I think, Jane, that electric light is like something that prohibits us from getting to the place. Like we can find that awe in meditation. But I think, uh, Jacob and Jane, I think that people found that awe a lot easier when they walked out their door at night and they saw the Milky Way. You know, there's a Absolutely. reason why we spent, we, we, we sent burnt lamp smoke up to the skies, why we made these sacrifices. There's a reason right. why we did that because God was up there or the animating force or whatever word that you want to use. Um, I do want to change gears to something else at some point. I know we're going long here, but this is a great show. Go for it. Jacob. Yeah. But Jane, do you have anything else before we move forward? 
I I just want to say that I recognize in your work a parallel to many other greats, um, whether it's uh, Yogananda, Eckhart Tolle, and and so and also the secret which is, you know, um, basically holding the vision and then not worrying about the how. Um, and so, you know, this idea of presence that you talk about, um, I, in my personal um, education, my, my education was in college, uh, was in world religions. So I studied Hinduism and Buddhism. I remember my mom saying, I don't know what you're going to do with that. And here we are. It's just all to say that you really don't know what each step on the path means and nor does it matter um but i just want to say that i i really recognize so much of your the wisdom that you share um with so many other people who have done all of the 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 thinking and non-thinking towards these ideas and and there's there's someone else i want to ask you about before you respond to that because yeah uh you talk a lot about breath in your book it's there's a constant reference to breathing and um the one of the things about our current pandemic that always concerned me from the beginning and i i'm also a lover of wim hof i don't know if you know who that is wim hof the Iceman, mm-hmm. who talks about breathing a lot and the power of breathing and the oh, power yes. of the cold get going into cold water and experiencing it and breathing right, very right. deeply. And he's been able to do things like climb Mount Everest in his, in his, uh, in his bathing suit and stuff like that. But that's a, beside the point. This, the, the people that I, that I really look to in, in the modern era yourself, um, Jordan Peterson's another one of these people for me, and you may not agree with him or whatever, but he talks a lot the way you talk about ancestors and, and this sort of stuff. So there's like a, a coming together of, 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 you know, sort of the, the philosophical expression of the 2020s or the, or the, 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 the 21st century seems to surround this darkness, seems to surround the breath, the carnivore diet, these types of returns to something more primitive. And I'm not, I'm not saying that any of these is right, but there's like a, a grasping into the dark at things right. that we don't, we don't have yet. And I see this mask wearing that they concerned me from the beginning this idea of restricting breath as a way towards health or as restricting breath as a procedure towards becoming safer as so antithetical to every idea that I've heard so far in my life that really makes a lot of sense. How does, can you, for me, um, square that circle or is it as ridiculous to think as I think it is to think that mask wearing is somehow healthy or is safe for people, or is that a circle you can square for us? Let's imagine that you were going into surgery and they're wheeling you into the surgical room and all the people there are in their bathing suit and thongs and, um, their hands are not necessarily washed. Um, how would you feel? Because when you normally go in there, people are dressed in clothes that has never been used before, usually disposable. They're wearing 
gloves or they've scrubbed, spent a lot of time cleaning their hands. They're wearing hats so nothing should fall off their head. And it's all being done to protect you from any potential infection when they open you up. One of the oldest things in the medical and healing field to deal with airborne infection is the wearing of a mask during activities where it's possible that you could uh, share that with someone else. So on one level, breathing is incredibly important. On another level, if you were living in the forest and the forest all of a sudden went on fire and you needed to get out of there alive and the fireman said, put this mask on so you don't breathe in the smoke, you would say, of course, that saved my life. If I breathe in that smoke, I'd probably die. Some smoke you can see and some smoke you can't. I think the pandemic is an example of a smoke that maybe you cannot see. And regardless of what you think or what you read or what other people say, I say, let's go to Los Angeles for a day and walk into one of those hospitals and see for ourselves what's going on rather than uh, what this person says or what this person writes when they may not have been there at all. Someone approached me the other night and was talking about the mask. The same discussion. I hate masks and this and that. And I said, it's a temporary thing. None of us are wearing them full time. Well, a lot of people think this is a hoax. I said, do you know anyone that's actually gotten it? No. They said, do you? I said, yes. Five of my son's friends have died. Really, old people? No, just two of them were elderly. The point I'm making is, with all of these questions, obviously, if you wore a mask all day long, it wouldn't be good for you. I don't think that's what's being suggested. I think that's exactly what's being suggested. And I think here's my concern. See, it's not the hoaxers I'm worried about. The people that think it's a hoax. Those are not the people I'm worried about. I interviewed on uh, another podcast recently, someone that discussed personality types. And we looked at the pandemic and the acceptance of the pandemic by different types of people's personalities and what stages and how they were. And what they broke it down was that there's about 30% of the people in our society that just are, are have become sadistic with this. And there's another percentage that are legitimately afraid, right? So you have like 30% of people that have, are using this as a tool to associate with other political aims. 
And then you have a certain group of the population that's a le legitimately scared and be con can be controlled by that group of people and that are walking around outside in parks wearing masks. They have their children wearing masks all day long outside in the classroom. Um, there's parents that are making their children wear masks at home after they come home from school. Um, yeah. Like this, like, so there's, I'm not worried, like you said, about the people that believe it's a hoax. I'm actually more worried about the people that don't believe it's a hoax. And I'm even more worried about the people that are using this as a political badge or some type of thing to show it's been politicized in the United States to the, right. to the point where now you have covering your breath and covering your mouth is a, a signal of um, is uh, signaling a political party a movement and something else. And that signal is, is aggressive. It's both aggressive, it's forceful and it's controlling of the population and it restricts their breath, which I think yeah. is essential see, to life. I don't really see it as a restriction of the breath. I see it as a time, a very needed time for a massive meditation <laughs> in which we have all been taken and separate it um, in which we can actually reconnect with what we call the light within. So I don't necessarily connect it with the breath because that story for me, I, I hear what you're saying, Mike, and I don't like that story. I don't, I don't want to connect with the idea that we're um, not getting children to breathe properly or that we're holding people back. Um, I see it more as a temporary but very needed massive meditation in which we are really meant to check in inside ourselves. Jacob, what do you think? I can only tell you how I live. <clears throat> um, I never wear a mask at home. I rarely, if ever, wear a mask outside if I'm taking a walk or walking on the beach or sitting on the beach as I was with my wife on Sunday. The only time I use a mask is when I'm going into a place where they're shopping. One, they require it. Two, there's other people. If I go to go food shopping, and even though I have my mask on, if the place is overly crowded, I won't even go. I just don't even want to be in that energy, which contains all the things that Mike described. Uh, for me, I use as much time as I can breathing nature's air. I find that wonderful for me. I also utilize the mask as I sense it's necessary, whether I'm shopping or maybe if I'm going to be with a I'm not really hanging out with a lot of people or anything like that. I just haven't in a while because of the situation. But for me, everything is moderation. I don't go to one extreme or the other typically. Uh, I often say I never found a food I didn't like. So <laughs> I'm somewhere more in in the middle. I identify with pretty much everything Mike said. You know, it's 
it's used as a sign of I'm a this or I'm a this. For me, it's none of those things. For me, what I'm guided by is my direct experience. I'm not guided by what this one says or this one says. If someone says something that's interesting, I'll research it. I'll take a look at it. I'll read the the papers, whatever it is, so that I see how it sits within myself. Um, you know, I think the truth of this thing will become more and more evident with time. Everyone that said it was a hoax, I don't know if we can call it a hoax when we have so many people dying. Um, if I didn't, if I didn't personally know people who had gotten terribly sick, were hospitalized, in my son's case, several friends of his passing, it might just be a, a statistic. We could just talk about it as something going on in the world, but when you have first-hand experience, something changes from that. So I think each of us have to be guided by our own internal compass, our own GPS in terms of uh, what is appropriate. And yes, I've seen everything that Mike uh, mentioned and also, Jane, what you mentioned about a a call for a coming together, if you will, uh, is also something that's going on worldwide right now. So we're in the midst of a paradigm shift on mm -hmm. a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. And when the tables are about to, the scale is about to flip, you see pretty much most people flipping out. <laughs> and that And that is, in fact, what's going on on a lot of levels. When they lock when they locked down when they yeah. locked down Ontario and when they locked down the first New York or something, I told Greg Jane that this marks an epoch. Yeah. Nothing will be ever the same after this. This that day marks an epoch. Whenever I can't remember what it was, I said it on the show. Um, I don't think you've squared it for me. I think that your luminous life is your book is in contradiction to what you just said now. But that's my opinion, and I'm I'm okay with that being my opinion. I mean, one of the contradiction. Well, you the said, contradiction in yeah. what way? I'm going to push back a little bit because um, good, it's I, fine. I, yeah, I really loved your book, um, and I have you know I'm I'm filled with my own opinions, and I respect yours. But you know, one of the things you said was we are inseparably connected to the intelligence of life, and we're living. We right. can live life by heart, and living life without safety nets. That's right from your book, and, right? And and that mask. Um, is a big safety net. And, you know, I don't want to push this too hard because it is a lighting show and we're supposed to be talking about, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the re-embracing of the dark skies, but I, I don't, I can't square those two things. I, I, I if it was a choice, if it was a yeah. choice and it wasn't mm -hmm. compelled and, you know, yes, I agree with Jane that there is a moment of time, like the moon and the stars have seen it all. Okay. They've seen all this. The sun is, they've seen humans behave this way before. And this is all something that will pass as well. And we'll come to a new place and we'll all have time to reflect on it, whether in death or in life. But um, I, I can't square this with the, uh, with the, with your extensive call for breathing. And for, I, I feel like the mask is actually over the eyes for a lot of people. 
Not for everyone, Gene. I think there's a lot of people that are taking this as a meditative experience. I think there are. And there's, but I think for a lot of people, the mask didn't go over their mouth first, Jacob. It went over their eyes first. And I'm very concerned about that. Let me respond. Let me respond. Um, Again, I actually do not see any difference in what we're saying. So I'm I'm just going to approach what you said. When I speak about breathing Mm -hmm. uh, in the book, um, and especially uh, an awareness that our body is always inflating and deflating, I speak about that awareness because what I've come to see is that when we're working hard on something, when we're thinking specifically, I notice that that rhythm it just freezes temporarily until that breathe that thought stops and then it begins again and so when i look at the fact that every cell of every living thing in this universe including the earth the solar system the the universe they're all expanding and contracting all of them I realize that it's not me breathing, it's life breathing me. And so my awareness of the breath is really my awareness of the source. My awareness of the breath is watching the heartbeat of the intelligence of life and being in alignment with that. That's the first thing about the breath. The second thing is this. There was a time when people uh, walked around without shoes on. We didn't have shoes. Then, uh, for some reason or other, people started paving streets and um, uh, doing things where the earth wasn't always covered with grass or dirt. And so people started exercising on the street. Well, they found when they did that with their bare feet, the asphalt or the concrete would irritate the bottom of their feet. So they developed special shoes to be able to run on this synthetic ground. So the shoes for me are not antithetical to living a natural life. It's just something that has evolved in the same way as a hundred years ago, uh, If you got uh, an infection, uh, what was natural was maybe you would take some herbs, maybe you would rest, maybe you would get better, maybe you wouldn't. Then at some point in time, they developed antibiotics. I'm not suggesting antibiotics are good or bad. It's just a tool. Now what's natural today is if you get sick, and it's something beyond your body's capacity, they might give you an antibiotic. I don't see the antibiotic as being antithetical to living a natural life. I think life is continually evolving, and that has become part of it. So in terms of the mask, I see this mask as a tool, not a tool that's going to control our life, but just something in a toolbox that you would use under a specific circumstance and then not use it. 
in the same I, way as we might use a, a wristwatch to, oh, it's 12 o'clock and I have an appointment to go to. So for me, um, when I say living life without a net, I'm not talking about living life without tennis shoes if you want to run on asphalt. I'm talking about living life without continually worrying that I have to guarantee everything is in place to make sure that I come out okay. My sense is that we can have a conversation like this, and even though you have all these notes and hardly have you used them, we've still had a wonderful conversation. And so this is living proof that we could do this show without a net. So what I am sharing in my book does not exclude anything. It includes every expression of life, however it comes. And it's not against this or for this. And so what you're saying, uh, even though you termed it as pushback, I never experience you as pushing. What I experience you is that you're sharing your particular experience. And because it's yours, it's no different from mine or Jane's. You're, you're going to educate me on something that is real for you. And then we're going to talk about it. And if we're very fortunate, we come to realize, oh, my God, we're saying the same thing. So I, while you've been talking, Jacob, I, I actually think I might be able to connect something here between what you both have been saying. Earlier in the show, we talked about the homeopathy of light and how yeah. less light, less starlight or less, less than brightness. The starlight right. has a medicinal factor on our minds, hearts, spirits. Well, you know, the breath is super important. I'm a yoga teacher. I, I connect into my breath all the time. And it is an avenue to really change the feeling inside your body. But what if, Mike, what if this temporary need to wear a mask was a slight deprivation, if only to notice how important it is? And so in the lack, in the darkness, in the lack of that ability, suddenly we can reconnect with how important it is. And so that story for me is way more meaningful than some of the other parts and parcels of, of what you were saying earlier, because it, sometimes I, I don't like to feel like that I'm being controlled by politics or by sadists or people who are hoaxers. You know, I would rather want to take a, a larger step back and really look at what this deprivation is doing. Because when I'm walking down the street, I can feel my breath. I can feel it get hot. It fogs up my sunglasses. I um, can tell when I need more breath, when I'm not getting enough, and that there is an awareness that's happening because of that, that I would never have connected into my breath before. So perhaps so this deprivation- So you're not, actually, you're not actually being deprived, you're being educated. Perhaps, yes. Yep. See, I, I think the question is the answer to that question. <laughs> 
I love the way you just said that. That's great. The question is the answer. Yeah. What was yeah, the question? True. Uh, Who yeah, the hell remembers? Exactly. No, I, I think that you closed the show there. The, Jacob, Dr. Lieberman, um, really, your book is very special to me. And uh, we've spoken for over 90 minutes now, and uh, I truly appreciate it. And uh, Jane, is there any final thoughts for Jacob? I would just say thank you so much personally for merging the spirit of light and the science of light, because um, I, until I came across your work, wasn't sure how I would merge that in my own work. And so you have put some wind in my sails um, for what I plan to do in my life. So thank you. Thank you. And, and I just want to tell, share one last thing with you. Sure. When I was on the beach on Sunday with my beautiful wife and best friend, Deborah, and she said, what's your schedule look like this week? And I said, oh, I have this interview on Tuesday. Well, who are these people? Well, this is the second interview. They said, really? How was the first one? I said, well, it was really interesting. When we got into it, I had a feeling that they thought I was just full of it. And I had a feeling that they were going to leap at any moment, confront me about this or that. I had a feeling that they thought that whatever I was going to be speaking about was just in contradiction to whatever was true for them. And I said, and it was interesting, I didn't know where the sense came from, but it came. And then we got into this conversation, and all of our personalities disappeared. And all of a sudden, we realized that at a certain level, we were all interested in the same thing. And when we came out at the end of that conversation, all of us were renewed, and none of us knew how we got there. And I said, so I'm really looking forward to this interview because so often we see life this way or we see life this way, and they might be opposites. But rarely do you sense that something might be in a different place than you, a different universe. And then through some means you cannot explain, those two come together, and all of a sudden you have a new friend. You have a new connection. You have someone new who might come from a different place in their life. But you respect them because they know who they are. So I just wanted to share with you that for me, these shows, uh, the two that we've done, um, have really been powerful for me because they're really what my entire life is about, which is not to see each other as right or wrong or good or bad. But can we see ourselves as different expressions of the same source? Hmm. And in some level of acceptance, we might find that we actually merge again into oneness. I really enjoyed being with both of you today. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Keep it easy, sucker. That's right. Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. That's light made easy. The easy folks 
at Keystone, keeping it real, keeping it easy. You know what I love about Keystone? They're continually innovating with new product, continually reaching into new product areas, always helping the distributor, always listening to the distributor, always making it easy for the distributor. Light made easy. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Get associated. Hey, Dr. Lieberman, Jacob. Oh, always a pleasure, sir. I wish this was the opening episode of Starving for Darkness. We were hanging on and hanging on and hanging on, but we just got to push it another two weeks till we get everything up and running. But sir, you're in my heart. I love you. I want you to come on again. You're a friend. And I really appreciate you. And I know, I know I'm speaking on behalf of Jane when I say all that. So Dr. Lieberman, what a gift you are to the world. For the rest of you listening that made it to the end, uh, we love you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.